0: Hi, you're listening to Space Talk with Jazz, and it's me, Jazz. Today we're going to be doing our second episode in the Macbeth series, and we are going to be doing act one, scene four, to act two. So we're going to be finishing the whole of act one today. This episode might be quite long because of this, because we are going to be doing four scenes in one episode today. So join me to look at all the analysis and themes and language that come across these four scenes. We're going to start by reading Act 1, Scene 4, and if you've watched my last episode, you know that we read it in little chunks if the scene is a particularly big one, and then we'll go through into the analysis. So I'm going to read the first chunk of Act 1, Scene 4 for you guys. Like I said last episode, I highly recommend if you have a copy of the modern text with you as I read the original text so you can actually understand what's happening but don't worry in my analysis um I will be saying what these words mean in modern text so I'm just going to read it now act one scene four enter king duncan lennox malcolm donald Bain and attendants duncan is execution done or on caudal are not those in commission yet returned malcolm my liege they are not yet come back but i have spoke with one that saw him die who did report that very frankly he confessed his treasons implored your highness pardon and set forth a deep repentance nothing in his life became him like the leaving it he was a gentleman oh, sorry. he died as one that had been studied in his death to throw away the dearest thing he owed as t'were a careless trifle. Duncan, there's no art to find the mind's construction in the face. He was a gentleman on whom I built an absolute trust. Enter Macbeth, Banquo, Ross and Angus. To Macbeth, O oh, worthiest cousin, the sin of my ingratitude even now was heavy on me. Thou art so far before that swiftest wing of recompense, recompense is slow to overtake thee would thou hadst less deserved that the proportion both of thanks and payment might have been mine. only i have left to say more is thy due than more than can pay okay so this is in this section duncan and malcolm are talking about the former thane of Cordor, and duncan is basically asking malcolm who is a um one of the king's men He's asking Malcolm what happened to the thane of Cawdor. Has he been executed yet? And Malcolm basically replies with, "They haven't come back yet." But he talked to someone who saw the uh, thane of Cawdor die, and um, he the uh, thane of Cawdor confesses treasons and begged for his forgiveness. <sighs> then enter Macbeth, Banquo, Ross, and Angus, and the tension is directed on Macbeth as Duncan. Praises Macbeth for his um, service and basically says that he's going to gift Macbeth with more opportunities. So let's go through with the analysis. So when Malcolm is talking and describing how the Thane of Cawdor, who, if you remember, um, betrayed the king and was working with the Norwegians, Malcolm says that the Dane of Cordor implored Your Highness' pardon, which basically means begged Your Highness's forgiveness. So this shows that one way or the other, um, that Duncan's power is too great to overthrow. So this may be too late for Cordor, but not too late for the future plotters. Um, so, Cordor basically begs for Duncan's forgiveness and shows remorse, and their confessions and appeals for forgiveness make them seem weak, just juxtaposed to Duncan's authority. He's the Highness. So, just to go through that again, because I explained that in quite a confusing way um, basically, the Cordor, Thane of Cordor, is begging for Duncan's forgiveness and he shows deep remorse for what he's done. Um Which shows Duncan's power is too great to overthrow, and maybe uh it's too late for Cordor um because he's executed, but it's not too late for future plotters uh to know that the King Duncan is too powerful, and one way or the other they will feel the full force and aggression of the power um and Their confessions and appeals for forgiveness, the Thane of Cawdor's confessions, makes them seem weak, juxtaposed to Duncan's authority. Now, juxtaposed is when you put two themes together that are complete opposites in a text. And then you have, the next thing that Malcolm said is he set forth a deep repentance, which shows that his death is highlighted and it could be a way to, a way for Shakespeare to warn the audience that somebody cannot attempt to overthrow a king because this disrupts the great chain of being and tarnishes uh, the divine right of kings without suffering consequences. So no one can do do that without suffering consequences. Now if we talk about the divine right of kings, basically it was a thing in the olden Days in the Jacobian era where it was believed that the king was chosen that the monarchy was chosen by God, and they were almost a spokesperson of the earth, and they were the closest person on the earth to God, so that explained why the power they held was so acceptable by society, and they didn't just they did question it but the ice cream van coming on my street, ignore that um so it shows that the reason they did not question their power was because they believed in this thing called the great chain of being, and that the God himself chose chosen chose choose these people, so just to say that again, um a deep repentance it just uh the death is highlighted, and it could be a way that Shakespeare warns his audience to not try to overthrow the monarchy and disrupt the chain, being, chain great chain of being without uh because they will suffer the consequences. Then Duncan says talks about how uh he trusted Cordor, the thane of Cordor completely and he says he was a gentleman on whom I built an absolute trust. Now this Brings in Duncan's flaw, and that is he is too trustworthy. So, in literature, we call this his Hamasha, which just means the flaw a character has that ultimately leads to their downfall. And if you use in your essays or your test, instead of saying flaw, uh, which leads to their downfall, just say their Hamasha, and that will really impress the examiner so basically duncan's hamasha slash flaw is that he's too trustworthy which we can see in this quote where he says he was a gentleman on whom i built an absolute trust now duncan seems to acknowledge the limits of his power that not even a king can overcome uh who people who want to overthrow him and he rebukes himself for being unable to see Cawdor's deception. So Shakespeare introduces us to a major idea explored throughout the play, which is appearance versus reality. Now, it's challenging to pinpoint exactly how the king is feeling at this point when he delivers this line. He was a gentleman on whom I built an absolute trust. But when you couple that with... um. with his tone in this um, section, it kind of has a sorrowful tone, a a hint of sorrow that Cordor could do such a thing, which shows that the two might've had a closer relationship than what um, was shown in the text. I mean, he built an absolute trust. Now trust takes time to build. So they could have had a closer relationship than we thought. And you could argue there is an element of wistfulness in his words, in Duncan's words and shakespeare cleverly foreshadows the trust duncan will place in macbeth a friend and an ally who will also take advantage of the close relationship he shares with the king so the thane of caudal himself before macbeth got the title was a traitor and it is um talking about heavily in the first few scenes and then we figure out that macbeth is going to be the new thane of caudal and it's kind of like they are passing on a traitorous title which already foreshadows um his his acts of treason then you have um duncan also says stuff like "O worthiest cousin the sin of mine gratitude uh thou hadst less deserved he's feeding in um, um macbeth's ambition he's giving him so many compliments and saying you're the worthiest kinsman, and I feel guilty for not having thanked you enough which is what the sin of my ingratitude means which basically is just feeding onto his already strong ambition then also Duncan says to Macbeth only I have left to say more is thy due than more can, uh, than more than all can pay so basically, he's saying all I can say is that I owe you more than I can ever repay. Now he owes Macbeth more than he will ever be able to pre- repay. That's what he's saying. So this is ironic, as Duncan will eventually pay with his life. This death, his death, will grant Macbeth unlimited power and control, with an authority and influence he could only dream of before the witches shared his um, shared the prophecies. So that's it for this little section. We learned that um, the thing of Cordor has um, been executed, and we know his execution is basically a way for Shakespeare to uh, warn his audience that you can't overthrow the monarchy uh, and disrupt the great chain of being without suffering the consequences. Um, and it's kind of really well aligned with the Jacobean era because that was also with the Gunpowder powder plot so this could be a uh response to that showing that you cannot get away with these kind of stuff um we see that uh, duncan's hamasha is carried on that he's too trustworthy and also we learn that um he says he's going to reward Macbeth more and that he's sorry for not um rewarding him enough as he should have been so now we're going to read the next section of Act 1, Scene 4. Now, this one is a is the last section in Act 1, Scene 4. So basically, I'm going to just read this all. It's a long one, and there's a lot to talk about in this one. So, Macbeth. The service and the loyalty I owe in doing it pays itself. Your Highness, part is to receive our duties, and our duties are to your throne and state children and servants, which do but what they should, by doing everything safe towards your love and honour. Duncan. Welcome hither, I have begun to plant thee, and will labour to make thee full of growing. To Banquo. Noble Banquo. That hast no less deserved nor must be known no less to have done so let me enfold thee and hold thee to my heart banquo there if i grow the harvest is your own duncan my planteous joys wanton in fulness seek to hide themselves in drops of sorrow sons kinsmen, thanes and you whose places are the nearest No, we will establish our estate upon our eldest Malcolm, whom we name hereafter the Prince of Cumberland, which honour must not unaccompanied invest him only, but signs of nobleness like stars shall shine on all deservers. To Macbeth, from hence to Inverness and bind us further to you. The rest is laid, Macbeth the rest is labour which is not used for you i'll, I'll be myself the harbinger and make joyful the hearing of my wife with your approach so humbly take my leave leave, duncan my worthy caudel macbeth aside the prince of cumberland that is a step on which I must fall down, or else o'erleap. For in my way it lies. Stars hide your fires; let not light see my black and deep desires. The eye a wink at the hand; yet let that be which the eye fears, when it is done to see. Duncan, true worthy Banquo. Oh, sorry. Macbeth exits. Duncan. True, worthy Banquo, he is full, so valiant, and in his commendations I am fed. It is a banquet to me. Let's after him, whose care is gone before to bid us welcome. It is is a peerless kinsman. Now, in this section, we learn that... uh, Macbeth and Duncan carry on talking. They're talking about Duncan saying how he will roared him more, and then they basically... This takes place in a meeting where Duncan was supposed to tell everyone who was their heir to the throne. Now, in Scotland time... Uh, in Jacobian times... I mean, not in Jacobian times. Um, In those times in Scotland, the Scottish crown wasn't hereditary. You could just... um, The king could choose anybody they wanted to, uh, to be king. So, that's why, um, Macbeth was kind of hoping that he'd be chosen for king. So, basically, this ball, or this, like, meeting, was a way um, for Duncan to tell everyone that who he's gonna uh, call king, uh, the the heir, and Duncan says his eldest son, Malcolm, will be the heir. Now, if you didn't know this from context, that uh, the king could choose anyone he wanted this would be confusing because Macbeth gets quite angry uh, when he talks aside, when it says Macbeth aside Um, but when he's talking to Duncan he's um, obviously pretending he's happy and Duncan tells Macbeth that he uh, will be coming to his castle for dinner and to tell his wife so she can prepare so and then we learn that Macbeth says aside that he um, just shows his inner feelings and how angry he is about that so let's look at it in more detail because right now I've just skimmed over some key things and the analysis of this will probably make you understand it more better than what I've just said so right in the beginning of this little section Macbeth says um, as a reply to what Duncan said before so if you remember Duncan said only I have left to say more is thy due than more than all can pay, so basically shows he owes Macbeth more than he will ever be able to repay, and then Macbeth replies to this, the service and the loyalty I owe in doing, it pays itself. So he's basically saying the opportunity to serve you is its own reward. So he plays the part of the humble soldier claiming he is happy to serve as king, and purely doing his duty is enough for him, um, and it's Macbeth's moral obligation to uphold Duncan's reign so basically he's playing a very humble soldier role then Duncan tells everybody that his eldest son is to be Prince of Cumberland and the Prince of Cumberland is the heir to the throne so he says our eldest Malcolm whom we name hereafter the Prince of Cumberland now Duncan causes Danes and noblemen around him to witness naming his eldest son, Malcolm, Prince of Cumberland, which is the heir to the to- throne. And at this, thro- and like we discussed, at this time the Scottish crown wasn't hereditary. So, this makes Duncan's actions so significant as he's making a statement and showing he can be cunning, which is the opposite to the feeble king that we were introduced in Act 1, Scene 2. So, he's choosing to keep the th- the crown and the throne which wasn't really a a known concept back then really it was a known concept but you didn't really have to do it um and if you remember he was promising macbeth great great things and naturally macbeth's man must have gone to oh he's gonna say i'm gonna be prince of cumberland and that's the opposite that What happened? so in this time it wasn't the king's place to elect his successor but that of his thanes. So normally the thanes used to advise him. So this just shows that he was doing the opposite of what he's meant to be doing. Um, Mm -hmm. So Duncan's election of his son shows he is willing to break historic tradition to get what he wants. So you could say that this is completely different to what we were introduced in the beginning of the play. Uh you could say he is inviting others at the announcement to challenge him, but do not but they do not because of the execution of Thane of Cordor. So it could be as a sign that actually Duncan is not as weak as we thought he was. Um also, this part could be seen as an example of how Macbeth is a is royalist propaganda. James I strongly believed in the divine rights of kings and believed in succession by hereditary. So it's easy to see James I's views incorporated in the play. Now we get to the bit where Macbeth talks aside. Now this is after Duncan says to Macbeth, "I'm going to go to your castle, uh, and you know, tell your wife to prepare and all that kind of stuff." And then Macbeth is obviously has to pretend that he's really happy of this news. He wasn't expecting that he was going to be Prince of Cumberland at all. So I'm just going to read this little bit that Macbeth says to himself again. So he says, The Prince of Cumberland, that is a step on which I must fall down or else owe leap, for in my way it lies. Stars, hide your fires. Let not light see my black and deep desires. The eye wink at the hand. Yet let that be which the eye fears. Now, this is such a small uh, portion of the text, but you can say a lot about it. So he says, that is the step on which I must fall down or else overleap. Overleap just means uh, step over or give in the way. So he sees uh, the Prince of Cumberland now, Malcolm, as an obstacle, because now he really wants to be king, this is when we learn, oh wait, no, Macbeth wants to be king, he wants to be Prince of Cumberland, and by asking, I I mean, by saying that, you know, we can see that he was expecting to be the Prince of Cumberland, he wanted to be the Prince of Cumberland, um, and like we said before, he'd been given the thane of Cordor, the title, so quickly, and he was already thane of Glam, so naturally his mind was like, "Oh yeah, I'm going to be king soon, because I've been thane of Cordor so quickly." Then he says, "Stars hide your fires," which means stars hide your light. Um, now, by asking the stars to hide themselves, it's implying he isn't deserving, deserving or worthy of the nobleness that Duncan has promised. Now Shakespeare begins to um, allude to Macbeth's Hamasha, and if we talked before, Hamasha means um, the character's weakness that leads to their downfall, which is his dark ambition. It could be argued that it's Macbeth's ambition that causes him to make mistakes and errors, uh, which uh, spurs him on to making his to the tragic climax. Now, Macbeth's ambition is the cause of his internal conflict he begins to experience later on. And Macbeth's ambition has always been there, but the witch's prophecies had just made it stronger, basically. So, you could use that quote to talk about his Hamasha really well. And then it says, Let not light see my black and deep desires. Now, we can see he's impatient, he's having evil thoughts. And this is the first time Macbeth calls for darkness to assist him in concealing his ambition. Um and he's already entertaining the thoughts of murder. Now, he says black and deep desires. Now, he acknowledges his desires are deep and evil, and this is an indication of their intensity and strength over him. It's important for him to mask his ambition because, because if he is to succeed in achieving them, he has to hide them. It's at this moment that the audience realises Macbeth is likely to choose evil over than waiting to be king and having faith. Now Macbeth hints that there is a lack of correspondence between the hand and the eyes when he says the eye winks at the hand yet let that be which the eye fears which basically means I won't let my eye look at what my hand is doing but in the end I'm still going to do that thing I'll be horrified to see. So we instantly know that he is going to murder Duncan probably or do something evil. And he's saying, I won't let my eye look at what my hand is doing. And if you recall, later on, when Macbeth has Duncan's blood on his hands, he can't bring himself to look at his hands. He's saying um, something along the. Let me just find it and I'll come back. Right, so he says, what hands are here? They pluck out mine eyes. He cannot bring himself to look at his eyes later on. He's saying they'll Look out his eyes. That's how disgusting this look at uh, this um, visual is for him to see Duncan's blood on his hands. So he he understands that um, later on he won't be able to like look at his hands. So right now he's saying, "I won't let my eye look at what my hand is doing," which is exactly what he does later on. So what this quote, the eye winks at the hand yet let that be which the eye fears, just hints that there is a lack of correspondence between the hands and the eyes. And maybe if he cannot see what he's done, he can somehow pretend he's innocent. By thinking this, we know he knows what he's doing is wrong, which links between eye and evil acts are not new. So in the the Jacobian era, eyes and evil acts, there were links between them. So when writing Macbeth, Shakespeare appears to have been influenced by the symbolic significance of eyes in the Bible, pluck out thine eyes, um, the eye winks of the hand, um, and the significance of eyes in the Bible, basically he uses that to explore the links between the eyes and the perception of good and evil. Uh, the biblical verses go on to discuss how no one can serve two masters, and Macbeth is in a similar situation. He cannot see he cannot serve Duncan while harbouring the desires that would see to end the king's life. And at this point in time, Macbeth tries to ignore the axe ambition is forcing his hands to complete to avoid darkness. But he acknowledges later on he won't be able to look at his hands, which is exactly what happens. Now. Uh, that is the end of Act 1, Scene 4, and now I'm going to read Act 1, Scene 5 for you guys, which is quite long, so I'm going to read the first section, and then we'll keep going to the section. So, enter Lady Macbeth alone with a letter. Lady Macbeth, they met me in the day of success, and I have learned by the perfect test report they have more in them than mortal knowledge when i burned in desire to question them further they made themselves air into which they vanished whiles i stood wrapped in the wonder of it came missives from the king who all hailed me thane of Cordor by which title before these weird sisters saluted me and referred me to the coming on the time with hail king thou shall be this have, I thought, good to deliver thee, my dearest partner of greatest, that thou might not lose the dues of rejoicing by being ignorant of what greatness is promised thee. Lay it to thy heart and farewell. glance thou art and caudal, and shalt be what thou art promised. Yet do I fear thy nature is too full of milk of human kindness, to catch the nearest way thou wouldst be great. Art not without ambition, but without the illness should attend it. What thou wouldst highly, that wouldst thou holily wouldst not play false, and yet wouldst wrongly win. Thou'st have great glams, and that which cries, thou, Thus thou must do, if thou have it, and that which rather thou dost fear to do. Than wishest should be undone, hide he hither, that I may pour my spirits in thine ear, and chastise with the valour of my tongue all that impedes thee from the golden round, which fate and metaphysical age doth seem to have thee the crowned withal. And to servant. What is your tidings? Servant. The king comes here tonight, Lady Macbeth felt mad to say it. Is not thy master with him? Who, wert so, would have informed for preparation? Servant, so please you, it is true, our Thane is coming. One of my fellows had the speed of him, who almost dead for breath had scarcely more than would make up for his message. Lady Macbeth, give him tending, he brings great news. Exit servant. The raven, raven himself is hoarse that croaks the fatal entrance of Duncan. So, basically, we learn that Lady Macbeth gets a letter from Macbeth and she's reading it and then she talks about how Macbeth is probably too kind to do the act and how she ha- she'd she probably have to take control of the situation. And then a servant comes in, interrupting her little monologue and informs her that the king is coming to the castle tonight, pal, the palace tonight um, and Lady Macbeth is in disbelief so let's really pick apart this little letter so in the letter Macbeth refers to Lady Macbeth as my dearest partner of greatness so she is his ally he can confide in her and treats her as his equal not of the typical stereotypical gender roles in the Jacobian era, so we automatically know that Lady Macbeth is not stereotypical. And they have a close bond, him and Lady Macbeth. Then, he says, give me a second, uh, by being ignorant of what greatness is promised thee, he sees it as, uh, it says, greatness that is promised to us the basically means us so he sees it as a shared victory as a couple uh, again showing how much they have a close relationship um then after she's finished reading his little part of the letter she says glams thou art and Cordor, and shalt be what thou art promised which basically means you are thane of glams and cordo and you're going to be king just like you were promised. So Macbeth in his letter is already assuming that, uh, Lady Macbeth is already assuming that he will be king, which perhaps plants a seed in uh, Lady Macbeth's mind that the Crown of Scotland should rightfully pass to her husband. The fact that she makes such a firm and concrete statement that he will be king introduces the audience to her drive, ambition and the thirst to get what she wants. Then she says, art not without ambition, but without the illness, should attend it. So she acknowledges that Macbeth does have ambition and she knows that he has ambition, but he probably doesn't have, he probably wants things, but he wouldn't act upon it. Now, also before that, she says that Macbeth is too full of the, um, of milk of human kindness, which basically just means uh, you are too full of the milk of human kindness. Sounds what it, sounds like what I just said. So Shakespeare here demonstrates that Lady Macbeth has a lack of confidence that later causes Lady Macbeth to plan... So the lack of confidence um, with Macbeth being brave enough to do this, which later causes Lady Macbeth to plan the murder of Duncan basically, by herself, which suggests that Macbeth's compassionate nature might dull his ambition, which is probably why before he was still ambitious but he wasn't that ambitious and he wouldn't really act on it, like she said. Uh, But, basically, Lady Macbeth heightens his ambition. She has a sense of control over her husband and is already clear as she encourages her husband to return home so she can pour... My spirit's in thine ear. Which is a quote, by the way. So, almost immediately on hearing about the witch's prophecies, Lady Macbeth has already resolved to help her husband get what she thinks is rightfully his, the throne. Um, an example of Lady Macbeth's use of demasculization to control Macbeth. Uh, she uses this to manipulate him, so she demasculizes, him. She masculinizes him a lot throughout the play to get what she wants, basically. Then, when the uh, the servant comes and tells her that the king comes here tonight, Lady Macbeth, sorry, I'm yawning. Lady Macbeth is shocked and disbelieved, and you can tell that when she says, without mad to say it to the servant. Then, when the servant tells him that tells her she says he brings great news, which shows that she's excited at this opportunity to meet Duncan not because she wants she wants to meet Duncan but because this means that they can kill him and um Macbeth can become a king now the servant exits, and then she says the raven himself is hoarse which means, so the messenger short of breath like a horse raven. So the raven is a symbol of death. So Shakespeare's foreshadowing Duncan's death associated with loss and bad omens, which is a raven is associated with loss and bad omens. Shakespeare may be linking Lady Macbeth's plan specifically to the actions of the witches and also could be interpreted as a raven, um, sorry i lost my train of thought then so it could also be interpreted as um the raven shows the misfortunes that await for the for Mac- the macbeth family um because a raven is a symbol of doom also she refers to the the, uh, the fatal entrance of duncan she doesn't say king duncan so she's already mentally stripped him of his crown He's not King Duncan anymore. Macbeth is going to be king. So she's already started thinking of um, of him as not the king. She doesn't refer to him as King Duncan. So now I'm going to read the next section of scene five. Give me a second. Yeah. And this is also going to be uh, all of scene five that I'm going to read now. So the raven himself is horse that creates the fatal entrance of Duncan under my battlement's Come, you spirits that tend on mortal thoughts, and sex me here, and fill me from the crown to the tip, to the toe top full of direst cruelty. Make thick my blood, stop up the access and passage to remorse, that no compunctious visitings of nature shake my fell purpose, nor keep a peace between the effect and it. Come to my woman's breasts, and take my milk for gall, you murdering ministers, wherever in your sightless substances you wait on nature's mischief. Come, thick night, and pal thee in the dunest smoke of hell, that my keen knife see not the wound it makes, nor heaven peep through the blanket of the dark to cry, Hold, hold. Enter Macbeth great glam's worthy caudal greater than both by the all hail hereafter thy letters have transported me beyond this ignorant present and i feel now the future in the instant macbeth my dearest love duncan comes here to-night lady macbeth and when goes hence macbeth to-morrow as he purposes lady macbeth oh never shall sun that morrow see your face, my thane, is a book where men may read strange matters to beguile the time, look like the time. Bear welcome in your eye, your hand, your tongue, look like the innocent flower, but be the serpent under it. He that's coming must be provided for, and you shall put this night's great business into my dispatch, which shall to all our nights and days to come give solely sovereign, and masterdom. Macbeth, we will speak further, Lady Macbeth. Only look up clear, to alter favour ever is to fear. Leave all the rest to me. So that is the second half of Act 5. I mean, scene 5, not Act 5. So, now, there's a whole paragraph about Lady Macbeth talks about summoning the dark spirits and make to make her more masculine then um Macbeth arrives and they discuss Duncan coming to their town uh, Duncan coming to their castle they don't actually talk about murdering him but they do talk about plans so we'll get more into that later so she says under my battlements Lady Macbeth and it's already manly language battlements that's war normally men were more interested in war So it's already, like, playing on the masculinity that Lady Macbeth has and she's basically preparing for war. Then she says, unsex me here. So this doesn't mean that she wants to become a man, which, or she's transgender. It doesn't mean that. She's basically asking to have masculine qualities. So if we want to go... More into, analytically into this, women were typically believed to be the gentle, soft, and subservient sex, um, and because Lady Macbeth feels her husband has too many of these feminine qualities, uh, milk of human full of the milk of human kindness, she is asking for her to be more masculine, in in the sense that to have more masculine qualities such as being ruthful, ruthless. Uh, ruthless uh, Ruthfulness, ruthlessness, give me a second, I need to search up that one. Okay, by the power of Google, it's ruthless. She wants to be ruthless, showing no pity or compassion for others. She wants to act without guilt or remorse. So she's asking for these masculine qualities and she considers herself in charge. So she's trying to not be like her husband so she can act without remorse. Um, And her concept of men is cruel because she views men as cruel. Okay, so. Then she says... Give me a second. Okay, so she uses imperatives like, Come, fill me, make thick my blood, stop, shake. So she's saying imperatives to take charge of the supernatural. She's um, taking control then she says, "Come to my woman's breast and take my milk for gall gall is poison." so she's basically saying um, her, for her milk to be replaced with poison, so she's bringing death where she should be giving life and also to shed her feminine femininity. Then she uses nasal alliteration when she says "Murdering minister's sightless substance, which shows enjoyance." I've written this down, but I don't actually know what it means. I think my teacher said it, but I wasn't really listening that well. So you can put that down in your analysis if you actually understand what that means, or you don't have to. Uh, then she says, sightless substance. That's sibilance. There's a lot of S's. So that creates a sinister tone. If you read that sentence, wherever in your sightless substances, there's a lot of s sightless substances yeah it's actually quite fun to say sightless substances it's sibilance it creates a sinister tone then she says pal thee in the dunnest smoke of hell so she continues to explore the theme of darkness she's asking for her forthcoming actions to be hidden away with the smoke of hell which represents the evil deeds are about to commit so she casts darkness over scotland Now, she says, nor heaven peep through the blanket of the dark. Now, this echoes Macbeth earlier on. Let me just try to find what he says. He says, stars, hide your fires. Let not light see my black and deep desires. Now, she's saying, nor heaven peep through the blanket of the dark. They're both asking that heaven doesn't see uh, what they're about to do, basically, what they're about to commit. Uh, then when Macbeth enters, she says, great, Glam's worthy, Cordor, So she is using flattery to manipulate him as she is charming her husband so he is more success- susceptible to her plans later on. And it also shows a close bond they share because she knows exactly how to get to him. And Macbeth says, my dearest love. Now he uses a superlative, dearest, shows his genuine love for Lady Macbeth. Then Lady Macbeth says, oh never, when she says, when Macbeth tells her that he, uh, Duncan plans to leave the night after, she says, oh never. Now, when in Shakespeare it has a capital O, it shows intense emotion. So, in this case, Lady Macbeth is showing, when she says, oh never, uh, an intense emotion of excitement of the new opportunity they're ga- gaining then she says look like the innocent flower but be the serpent underneath and this is a really common quote and it's explicitly telling him to hide his intentions and feelings and because he is a book where men may read strange matters basically saying i can, I can people will be able to read you like a book so she's telling him to hide his intentions and the idea of the serpent is also a reference to the biblical story of Adam and Eve, um, which I'm sure you'll be familiar. Um, Eve basically eats the the apple um, from the tree of knowledge and they invite more wickedness into the world, just like Lady Macbeth is doing here. Now Lady Macbeth speaks in rhyme, days to come and masterdom. And she's speaking in rhyme, sounds like a spell, and only the witches speak in rhyme, so she's presented as evil straight away. It's almost like she is bewitching him when she's talking to him. And then Lady Macbeth also says, when Macbeth says, we will speak of his father, she says, leave all the rest to me. She's taking charge. She's not like stereotypical Elizabethan women. She is asking Macbeth to rely on her. And then they exit, and that is the end of scene five. So in scene 5 we learn um, a lot about Lady Macbeth, this is the first time that Lady Macbeth speaks. She reads the letter, she um, shows that she is doubting whether Macbeth will be able to go through it, so she asks the spirits to uh, unsex her so she can be more masculine because she doubts that Macbeth will be able to do this on his own. She asks for um, masculine qualities like being cruel and ruthless. Um, and then they talk about the plans. They don't actually talk about murdering Duncan, but they do talk about the opportunity they now have to become king. And now we're on Act 1, Scene 6, which is the second last scene. We still have two scenes, and then we'll be done with Act 1. So, sorry if you hear flicking. I'm just flicking through my, um, script. So... Act 1, Scene 6. Let's read it. I am just going to read the whole of Act, uh, the whole of Scene 6, and then we'll go through it. So, Enter King Duncan, Malcolm, Donalbane, Banquo, Len Ox, oh, Lennox, Macduff, Ross, Angus, and attendants. Duncan. This castle hath a pleasant seat. The air nimbly and sweet reco- recommends itself upon our gentle senses. Banquo. The guest of summer the temple haunting martlet, does approve by his loved m- masonry that the heaven's breath smells wooingly here no no jutty freeze buttress nor coin of vantage but this bird hath made his pendant bed and procreant cradle where they most breed and haunt i have observed the air is delicate I just want to interrupt in this and when I read this little sentence that McBankway is saying, I have no idea what he's saying. He sounds like he's saying gibberish, but we will go through what he's saying. Don't worry. So if you don't understand what he just said, like me and I have the modern text right by it, don't worry, we'll go over it. So enter Lady Macbeth, Duncan. CC honoured hostess. That... Okay, I'm going to say that again because I just got confused. Duncan, see, see, our honest hostess. No, honoured. Okay, I'm so sorry. I can't read today. Enter Lady MacBeth. Duncan, see, see, our honoured hostess. The love that follows us sometime is our trouble, which still we thank as love. Herein I teach you how you shall bid God Lid us for your pains, and thank us for our trouble. Lady Macbeth. All our service in every point, twice done and then done double, were poor and single business to contend against those honours deep and broad, wherewith your majesty loads our houses. For those of old and the late dignities heaped up to them, we rest your hermits. Duncan. Where's the Thane of Cawdor? We coursed him at the heels and had a purpose to be his purveyor, but he rides well, and his great love, sharp as his spur, hath helped him to his home before us. Fair and noble hostess, we are your guests tonight. Lady Macbeth, your servants ever have theirs themselves and what is theirs in compt, to make their audit at your highness's pleasure, still to return your own. Duncan, give me your hand. Conduct me to mine host. We love him highly and shall continue our graces towards him. By your leave, hostess. Exuant. No, exuant just means they all exit. And it basically indicates the end of a scene. So basically, this scene is quite short, sure actually. But there's a lot you can say about it. And Duncan arrives at the castle. He talks to Book Banquo about the castle. Then Lady Macbeth arrives and she basically... Uh, Thanks. plays the part of a grateful hostess, really sweet, charming person, um, and basically leads Duncan to his death, or as we say, his bedroom. So, Duncan says in the beginning, this castle hath a pleasant seat. He's talking about how nice the castle is, and it's ironic as this is where he's going to die, highlighting how he is foolishly optimistic. It shows the audience how Duncan is taken by appearance and the castle may look attractive but behind these walls is a distorted truth which um the macbeths will fully exploit in order to pull off their plans Mm -hmm. and duncan is unaware of what the plotters um what the macbeths are plotting against him then banquo says the temple haunting martlet so, martlets are basically restless birds, which foreshadow Dungan's death. Then he says, by his love, Mancenary, that the heaven's breath smells wooingly here. Uh, and that basically means um, this summer bird is building his nest here, and this proves how inviting the breezes are. So he conjures an image of paradise which is far from the corruption and sin which is secretly beginning to start in the Macbeth household. So we get the sense that appearance versus reality theme. The castle may look attractive and like a nice place to be in but actually um, it will be the place where treason is committed. Then... Duncan says, when Lady Macbeth enters, our honoured hostess. So he praises Lady Macbeth immediately and sees himself as an inconvenience when he says, "Um, the love that follows us sometimes is our trouble. And then he says, and thank us for your trouble. So he's boasting of his superiority and he sees his presence as an honour. Basically says... I'm teaching you to thank you for the inconvenience I'm causing you by being here. Yeah, he's basically saying you should be grateful I'm here, basically. Then Lady Macbeth says, In every point, twice done and then done double. She's basically saying everything we're doing for you, even if it were doubled and then doubled again, it is nothing compared to the honours you have brought to our family. So she's speaking hyperbole, basically excessively sweet. She's being excessively sweet so she can fake, uh, being a caring hostess. Let's say she places herself and Macbeth in an inferior position, which is hyperbolic. And the repetition of "done" could be a, I mean, the repetition of "double" could be a subtle link to the evil of the witches, who echo the word "double" when they cast their spells: double bubble, toil and, and trouble, toil and trouble. Uh, So it could be an echo of the witches as well. Then she says, against those honours deep and broad, where thine your majesty loads our house? And this is that she's acting gracious and Macbeth is not here because he's not good at hiding his emotions. Because Duncan says, where is Macbeth? So we know that Macbeth is not present and that's because he's not good at hiding his emotions. As we figured out when she says, um, your face is a a book where men may read strange some things. Let me just go back and see the quote. Okay, I don't know where it is, but it's somewhere. Oh, here it is. Uh, Your Face, My thing, is a book where men may read strange matters. So it's acknowledged again here that um, he's not there because he can't hide his emotions. So then Duncan says that he... Um, that Macbeth's great love, sharp as his spur, hath helped him to his home before us, which means... His great love, which is sharp as a spear, helped him beat us here. So he's basically saying that his love for Lady Macbeth is what, what spurred him home and helped him beat the battle, but really it was his ambition. Then he says, give me your hand, conduct me to mine host. We love him highly and shall continue our graces towards him. By your leave, hostess. So conduct me to mine host is dramatic irony because he's saying bring me to a... Uh, my host Macbeth but she's actually going to be bringing uh, Duncan to Macbeth to kill him so leading him to his death and he says um, I shall continue to favour him we love him highly and shall continue our graces towards him him is Macbeth and again it just reminds us of Duncan's trusting nature now we are on the last scene of act one now this scene is about two and two and a half pages long so I will read it again, like I said, I'll read the first section, then I'll read the second section, and I will read the third section. So there's going to be three sections in scene seven. Enter a, enter a sewer and divers, servants with dishes and services over the stage, and then enter Macbeth. Macbeth, If it were done when it is done, then twirl well it were done quickly if the assassination could trammel up the consequence and catch with his success that but this blow might be the be-all and the end-all here but here upon this bank and shoal of time we jump the life to come but in these cases we still have judgment here that we but teach bloody instructions which being taught return to plague the inventor this even-handed justice commends the ingredients of our poisoned chalice to our own lips Here he's he's here in double trust first as i am his kinsman and his subject strong both against the deed then as his host who should against his murderer shut the door or bear the knife myself besides this duncan hath borne his faculties so meek hath been so clear in his great office that his virtues will plead like angels trumpet-tongued against that deep damnation of his taking off and pity like a naked new-born babe striding the blast or heaven's cherubim Horsed, horsed upon the sightless couriers of the air shall blow the horrid deed in every eye that tears shall drown the wind i have no spur to prick the signs of my intent but only vaulting ambition which o'erleaps itself and falls on the other enter lady macbeth how now what news lady macbeth he has almost supped why have you left the chamber macbeth hath he asked for me Okay, so that is the first section. And basically, this is Macbeth really contemplating whether he should kill... Um... Sorry, should kill the king. And at this point, he's really leaning to the side of thinking, like, no, I shouldn't kill the king. I am his kinsman. I am his host. I shouldn't be doing this. And then Lady Macbeth enters saying that, um he's almost finished his dinner, Duncan. Has almost finished his dinner and that's where this little section ends. So let's talk about this little uh, monologue that Macbeth has here. He says, If it were done when tis done, then twere well it were done quickly. This basically means if this business would really be finished when I did the deed, Then it would be best to get it over with quickly. Now he is strategically planning like a soldier, uh, and planning in the most strategic and convenient way he can. Then he says, "Could trammel up the consequence." So he's saying, if the assassination of the king could work like a net, sweeping up everything and preventing any consequence. Um. So Macbeth has come to terms with killing the king. But he's worried he will get caught. He has, now he's actually thinking of killing the king, unlike before he wasn't actually thinking about it. Um, but the only thing that's stopping him is the consequence. What will be the actions that he will be reprimanded? His actions, uh, what will be the result of his actions? Now he also says, but this blow might be. So might, it's the modal verb, he's unsure. Um, then he says, To plague the inventor, that could be his mental health. Then he says, uh, he's here in double trust, first as I am his kinsman and his subject. Now he's aware of his role, he's supposed to be protecting the king, uh, and he acknowledges that this is the opposite of what he should be doing. Um, And then he says, and then as his host, who should against his murderer shut the door. Now the modal verb should tells the audience that Macbeth is aware of his moral obligations and yet he does not end up fulfilling them. Now in the beginning it says if it were done when tis done then well it would done quickly. He says it. He's subtly trying to separate himself from the act that he's thinking to do as he's refusing to explicitly state what he's planning to do to separate himself. Then he says, he lists the qualities that Duncan has um, that makes him a good king, like his faculties are so meek, he is so clear in his great office, Um, when he dies, if he dies the angels will plead, trumpet toned against the deep damnation of his taking off. Um, then also he says, heaven's cherubim horsed upon the sightless couriers of air which means, pity like an innocent newborn baby will ride the wing with winged angels on invisible horses through the air, spread news of the horrible deeds to everyone and everywhere. Now, basically he's listing the consequences of, of his death. And this is the thing, like faint will haunt him. And he's aware that other people might find out that he killed the king and there's always going to be that consequence. And... He says, I have no spur to prick the sides of my intent, but only vaulting ambition. He's aware he's overstepping himself. He's aware of his hamartia um, of ambition, vaulting ambition. Um, he has self-awareness of that flaw that he possesses. Now, this is his first extended soliloquy. Um, And it's a real chance for the audience to understand what exactly is going on in his mind, away from everyone, and away especially from Lady Macbeth, whose presence seems to make Macbeth unreliable. Uh, We don't know whether Macbeth truly believes what he is doing and saying, or whether he has been influenced by Lady Macbeth's dominance when he's with Lady Macbeth, so this is why this is a really good chance for the audience to understand what's going on in his head. Um, he He cannot be around the king at this point because this is the man he fought for and the man he is a loyal servant to, but he's also thinking these murderous thoughts alongside it. Now, like I said, this is the first time he appears alone on the stage and Lady Macbeth is not present there to manipulate his thoughts. So we learn that he is hesitant and unsure as he fears the consequences of the act. Now he freely admits that if he had the ability to king the king with the knowledge that there would be no consequences, then he would do it um, and Macbeth is willing to risk an afterlife uh, because and Macbeth is deliberately deliberating whether to kill the king, but he fears God's wrath or judgment and is also focusing on the immediacy of what will happen if he went through the war- murder. Now, violence is not the last resort. It's the first for Macbeth, as it's the easiest one to commit. And Macbeth wonders whether he will suffer what, has, what he has inflicted upon Duncan, and in doing so, does he render himself vulnerable before he has even done anything? And Macbeth is more than capable of committing despicable acts of violence, but he seems wary of it. Now, as he comes to the end of the soliloquy, he determines how others would react if Duncan did die. And the heavenly imagery Macbeth uses to describe how um, people pity for Duncan uh, would spread in contrast to the hellish symbolism, which haunts the rest of the play. Now, he does references to heaven's cherubim, combined with angels, trumpet-tongued, which suggests Duncan's entrance to heaven will clearly be accepted, whereas Macbeth would descend to hell. Um, which is an absolute certainty if he decides to commit to treason. So after a soliloquy, Lady Macbeth enters and says, how now, what news? So what news do you have? Uh, Lady Macbeth, I mean, Macbeth says that, and then Lady Macbeth says that, he has almost supped. Why have you left the chamber? And Macbeth said, has he asked for me? And Lady Macbeth says, know you not, he has. Macbeth, we will proceed no further in this business. We hath honoured me of late, and I have bought golden opinions for all sorts of people, which would be worn now in their newest gloss, not cast aside so soon. Lady Macbeth Was a hope drunk wherein you dressed yourself? Hath it slept since, and wakes it now to look so pale and green at what it did so freely? From this time such I count thy love. Art thou afeard to be the same in thine own act and valour? as thou art in desire. Wouldst thou have that which thou esteemed the ornate of life, and deliver coward in thine own esteem, letting I dare not wait upon I would like the poor cat cat I'd Macbeth. prithee, peace, I dare to all that may become a man who dares to more is none. Lady Macbeth. What beast was was it then? That made you break this enterprise to me when you durst do it then you were a man and to be more than what you were you would be so much more than a man nor time nor place did then adhere and yet you would make both they have made themselves and that their fitness now doesn't make you i have given suck and know how tender tis to love the babe that milks me I would, while it was smiling in my face, have plucked my nipple from his boneless gums and dashed the brains out, had I so sworn as you have done to do this. So this is the first time Lady Macbeth is manipulating Macbeth into doing what she wants. Before, yes, she didn't really manipulate him, she was talking about how he's a bit too weak for this. Not really manipulating him. But this is when she full on. Manipulates him. And deceives him. So. When Macbeth says. We will proceed no further in this business. He's. He's decided not to kill the king. He's decided not to kill Duncan. Because he's a good king. And he's loyal to him. Now he attempts to gain control of the situation. um And he is trying to. Uh, be the authority, yet he's undermined by the ex- explanation that Macbeth feels like he has to offer. Um, now, he's uncomfortable with this concept. He says business. Again, he's not explicitly saying murder. He keeps saying it, deed, or business. He never actually says murder or treason because he's uncomfortable with the concept. Now, Lady Macbeth then responds with, was the hope drunk? Why are you dressed yourself? Now, this is, she knows how to exploit his vulnerability. She's emasculating, demasculating him, associating alcohol with manliness. She's saying, are you in your right senses? Are you thinking straight? Um. Then she says, you, he looks so green and pale, shows that she thinks he looks weak and ill. Um, Then she says, for this time, such I account thy love. And this basically means from now on, this is what I'll make, what I'll think of your love. So she questions his love for her. This is essentially emotional blackmail. She then says, "Um, same in thine own act and valor as thou art in desire, which means are you afraid to act the way you desire? So she is twisting his morals. She was also asking him a lot of question marks. She asked him, "Wherein you was the hope drunk? Wherein you dressed yourself? Hath it slept since? At what it did so freely, as thou art in desire?" So she's interrogating him. There's an anger, angry tone there. She's she's interrogating him basically. Um. Then she said, "Which thou esteemed the ornament of life?" So she plays on his ambition by saying will you take the crown you so w- want badly so again she's playing on his ambition um she calls him a coward which questions him as a soldier she knows exactly how to manipulate him um and then macbeth replies pretty peace i dare do all that may become a man who dares do more is none that means, please stop, I dare to do only what is proper for a man to do. He who dares to do more is not a man at all. So she hasn't had an effect on him yet because he's re-establishing his manhood. So he's has a little bit of fighting in him. He is saying that, N- no, I am a man. And then she says, what beast was it then? She compares him to an animal. She's stripping Macbeth of his humanity. Um... She said, Then what kind of animal were you when you first told me you wanted to do this, basically? And beast is something wild. A beast is something that is untamed. So maybe she's making Macbeth think that she doesn't know what he is anymore, uh when in fact she actually knows him really, really well. And then she says, When you durst do it, then you are a man which means when you dare to do it, that's when you were a man. So she is talking to him in past tense, saying that he used to be a man. He was a man when he agreed to do the plan to kill Duncan, and now he does not. So explores she explores what it's like to be a man and a woman. She wants him to be bold and refuses to let, fear, let the fear that Macbeth has to get in the way with the, her plans. She then keeps saying to be more than what you were, be so much more than a man, again playing with his ambition and the prospect that they can be more than more of what they are than they are now. She says uh, about how when... Um, nor time nor place did then adhere, and yet you would make both. They have made themselves, and that their fitness now doesn't make you. Which means uh, before the time and place were perfect to do the deed and you were uh, ready to go ahead but now the time and place are just right and now you won't do it. So it's it's kind of saying to Macbeth you're all talk but you're not actually brave enough to do anything. Then she brings up a vulnerable image of a baby. She says I have given suck and know how tender tis to love the babe that milks me. So she brings up a vulnerable image of a baby. She declares that she she would kill a child if she had sworn to her husband to do so. And the action she describes is so explicit, yet she cleverly spins her statement to convince Macbeth to shun his moral um, obligations. By killing a child, she is willing to sacrifice her maternal instincts. She says and dashed the brains out. She goes against the roles of a mother mother against being stereotypical. She says she's stereoty- she's capable of being violent, but actually when it comes to the violence, Macbeth has to kill Duncan. She doesn't kill him. So she brings out the vulnerable image of a baby to exploit his feelings. Then the next section is the last section of C Se- scene seven is this macbeth if we should fail lady macbeth we fail but screw your courage to the sticky place and will not fail when duncan is asleep where to the rather shall his day hard journey soundly invite him his two chamberlains will i with wine and wassail to convince that memory the warder of the brain shall be the fume of the res- and the receipt of reason, and limbeck only, when in swinish sleep their drenched natures lie as in death. What cannot you and I perform upon the ungu- unguarded Duncan? What not put upon his spongy officers who shall bear the guilt of our great quell? Macbeth. Bring forth men children only, for thy undaunted mettle should compose nothing but males. Will it not be received when we have marked with blood those sleepy two of his own chamber and used their very daggers that they have daunt? Lady Macbeth, who dares receive it other as we shall make our grief and clamour roar upon his death? Macbeth, I am saddled, And bend up each corporal agent to his terrible feet. Away and mock the time with fairest show. False face must hide what the false heart Dot know. Okay, so that is the end of Act 1. And let's go through this last section of Scene 7. So Macbeth brings up his fears of failing and getting caught. Lady Macbeth assures him that if he can get his courage up, then they won't fail. She says, screw your courage to the sticky place. She's telling him to man up, encouraging him. She's commanding her husband to find this bravery and fearlessness, concluding that they will not fail if he gets rid of his weaknesses. Um, now, if you remember last episode, I talked about... Let me find the quote for a second. Right, right in the beginning, when the captain is talking about how Macbeth fights, he says, till he faced the slave which shows that a warrior should face an opponent fairly, but now they're killing Duncan when Duncan is asleep, which is an an unfair act, so it shows how Macbeth has slowly transformed and has gotten further and further away from the image of a perfect soldier, which he was described as in the beginning. Then Lady Macbeth says, Swinish sleep, which the sibilance sounds like they're whispering, to each other, and it's like they're conspiring against the king. Then she says, "What not put upon his sponge?" Okay, I lost where I was. So, what not put upon his spongy officers who shall bear the guilt of our great quell? So at this point, she wants it more than Macbeth does. She she's clever and she knows how she's gonna work the plan, and she's already planned it really thoughtfully. She's planned everything out. Um And Macbeth says, "Bring forth men children only for thy undaunted metal shall compose nothing but males. She basically says hes basically means May you only give birth to male children because your fearless spirit should create nothing that isn't masculine so she he recognizes her masculine character, how she's cruel, and it's kind of weird because Macbeth desires masculine m- masculinity uh he's always trying to be more masculine and he's attracted to masculine masculinity which is might be why lady macbeth is so able to persuade her husband because being masculine is a big part of macbeth's character and uh lastly the last quote of act one is i am settled and bend up each corporal agent to his terrible terrible feet Which means, now I'm decided and I will exert every muscle in my body to commit this crime. He's well aware what he's about to do is wrong. He calls it a terrible feat. And now he just, he's made his decision. And now at this point, the audience knows that he is going to commit a crime. Now also, he says, show and no, He does a rhyming couplet, which suggests he's back in the witch's influence. Or we could even say Lady Macbeth's influence. And that is the end of Act 1 and we have done it all in about an hour and almost an hour and a half. I know it was a long one but thank you for sticking through it and now hopefully you have a script um, for with Act 1 analysis. (laughs) Thank you for listening to this episode of GCC Revision with Jazz by me, Jazz. And I hope this podcast, uh, this episode helps you in any way, shape or form. If you do have any suggestions on what to cover next, um, I would find it really helpful if you leave a comment, uh, subscribe, I don't know, leave a like, whatever you have to do. Follow, I think is the more appropriate word uh, rather than subscribe, but we're not on YouTube. Um, and have a good day basically. Yeah, I hope this helped and uh, bye. (laughs)